private equity, which is this term that I think we've all heard, but a lot of us, including myself, didn't understand, was really taking over a large segment of the American economy. You know, have you ever had this experience where there's a brand or a thing that you love, and all of a sudden it just starts to get shitty? (laughs) Dollars to donuts, it was purchased by a private equity company. You're talking about private equity or piracy? Ahoy there. Ahoy there, Nick. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. Goldie, today on the podcast, we get to talk about a a subject that's really near and dear to my heart, which is private equity. You know, I am a capitalist. I continue to be a capitalist, but there are a lot of bad things that happen in the, the neoliberal form of capitalism that the United States of America has decided to embrace. And nobody better embodies the shittiness of that than my good friends in the private equity industry. You're talking about private equity or piracy? Ahoy there. Ahoy there, Nick. Are we talking about piracy on this episode again? (laughs) It is uh, very similar. And and private equity, you know, is, is a business model that shouldn't be bad. It's quite straightforward. You take some money, you take a little investor money, you borrow some money, you buy a company, and theoretically, you run it better and then sell it for more than you paid. Right. You could be a turnaround artist, right? You take a struggling company, you put some money into it, you tighten up things, you improve morale, you make it better, it turns more profitable, and then you sell it as for a profit. That's the way the industry sells itself it does. That's what it says it does. Right. But that's not what it actually does anymore, at least in many, many, many circumstances. It's an industry that has moved from making companies better to making companies worse and extracting profits in that process. And today, we've talked about this on the pod before, but today we get to talk to another expert on this subject, Brendan Ballou who is actually a federal prosecutor. He works at the Department of Justice in the Antitrust Division. And he's written a book called Plunder, Private Equity's Plan to Pillage America. And, you know, it's a really important subject, Goldie, because it touches so many people, right? Like Mm -hmm. there's so many examples of the harm that this business model creates for everyone other than... Uh, the private equity uh, firms themselves and the the owners of the companies who sell out to the private equity firms. Right. There's estimates that say that over the, the, the past decade or so, it, it may have resulted in the loss of over 600,000 jobs, that it may have shortened as many as 20,000 lives uh, through their business practices. So it, it's got a it's got a big impact on yeah. on customers, on workers, on the economy as a whole. In preparing for this podcast, I did a little bit of quick research to try to understand whether my sort of anecdotal understanding of the impact of private equity matched with the actual statistics. And it is just astonishing 
you know, when you look at the retail bankruptcies and the connection to private equity, whether it's Toys R Us or Payless or Shoe Source or Sports Authority, uh, Fairway just went bankrupt. And in fact, there's this fantastic quote by this guy uh, who works for Bloomberg, Joe Nocera, uh, who said, have we finally reached the point where we automatically assume that every new retail disaster has been caused by a private equity firm? Yes, I believe we have. <laughs> you know, so it's just private equity firms really just are looters. That's kind of what they are. And I think it's just great to have somebody on who's expert in this uh, field to talk us through how we got here and what we can do to get out from under it. So with that, let's talk to Brendan. My name is Brendan Ballou. I'm a federal prosecutor, though speaking, of course, in my personal capacity. And I am the author of Plunder, Private Equity's Plan to Pillage America. Give us a little background on you and how you found your way to caring about private equity. And characterizing them as pirates. Yes. <laughs> well, so I, uh, I was working in the antitrust division of the Justice Department in 2020, and I'm still at DOJ. One of the things that a lot of people don't know is when big companies file to you know, get bought by one another, they have to send some information to the Justice Department and to the FTC. And I was going through these filings, and it just seemed like every company that was getting bought up was getting bought up by these firms that I had never heard of, you know, Blackstone and Carlisle and KKR and so forth. And these institutions seemed like mysteries to me. And so I just started looking into them and it just seemed like private equity, which is this term that I think we've all heard, but a lot of us, including myself, didn't understand, was really taking over a large segment of the American economy. And so I wanted to find out why and what the consequences were. Explain to our listeners, and we have we have actually talked about private equity before because it's such a such a scourge. But, but explain to our reacquaint our listeners with what it is and how it works. Of course, the basic business model of private equity is pretty straightforward. Private equity firms use a little bit of their own money, some investor money, and a whole lot of borrowed money to buy up companies. They then want to make financial or operational changes to the companies with the aim of selling them for a profit a few years later. So it's a very straightforward business model, but because of various legal structures that we have around private equity, um, our tax laws, our liability laws, and a whole lot else, there are incentives that often mean that the companies that these private equity firms buy have really bad consequences. Bad consequences for consumers, bad consequences for workers, sometimes bad consequences for the companies themselves. So you're talking about, like for us old guys, we used to call these leveraged buyouts, and it's it's like Gordon Gecko from the uh, movie <laughs> Wall Street, right? It, Reed is good and all that. Yeah, you know, and I, I always try to emphasize, you know, you know, Gordon Gecko said greed is good, and I, I think a lot of folks, when they are critical of private equity tend to focus on the people that are running the private equity firms. My critique tends to be a little bit more about the legal structures that we've got that allow private equity firms to do what they do. I don't think uh, we're gonna fundamentally change human nature anytime soon, but we can try to shape our laws so that our base, you know, our basic instincts to make money is cha are channeled into productive uses rather than unproductive ones. 
Yeah. And so I, I think it's fair to say, I, I actually, I mean, in the interest of full transparency, I have a lot of exposure to this business model and these processes and, you know, I participated to a, to a large degree. In theory, this is not necessarily evil, right? Like there is a case where you can use a little of your money, a little of investors' money and some borrowed money to buy a business, materially improve its circumstances by managing it better, and then sell it at a profit. This yep. is, th th that is a possible outcome. That, yeah, Nick, that's one possible outcome where you could, you could use other people's money to buy a company, load it up with debt, drive it into bankruptcy, and offload its uh, pension obligations. Correct. Well, <laughs> well, earning huge amounts of fees and other things, and you come out ahead no matter what happens. Is that Have I characterized that correctly, Brendan? <laughs> well, you know, I, I agree that with Nick's point that, you know, there is always a role for finance to play in the economy. You know, yeah. If you are trying to build a new factory, if you're trying to hire new workers, you need somebody that's willing to invest the money and take the risk on your plan. Yeah. So this isn't a criticism of finance. The challenge that we've got is that the private equity business model really has three basic legal challenges. One is that firms tend to invest just for a few years. So they have a very short-term perspective. Uh, the second is that they are able to load up companies with a lot of debt and they're able to extract a lot of fees. And the third thing, and this is what interests me the most as a lawyer, is private equity firms are enormously successful at insulating themselves from liability for the consequences of their actions. And so what that means is when you've got a business model that's focused on the short term, that relies on a lot of debt and extracts a lot of fees, and that can kind of walk away if things go poorly, that creates an incentive system that is often bad for employees, for customers, for companies. Yeah. It's only good for two classes of people. It's good for the private equity players, and it's good for the previous owners who get to extract maximum value from the enterprise. I'm glad that you hit on that point because I get asked fairly often, why do private, why do companies sell themselves to private equity firms? And I always say, you know, it may or may not be a successful transaction for the company in the long term, but it often is very successful for the executives who often have an equity stake in the company and they get to essentially cash out when the private equity firm buys it. And so that often, not always, but often explains why companies agree to be purchased by these firms. Yeah. I mean, the private equity players, in my experience, often will pay the highest price. And there's a reason for that, which is that for them, it's all upside and very little downside. So they can afford to pay more because they take comparatively smaller risks than if you just came along and paid all capital, for example, for a business and owned it outright and had all the liabilities, you know, that you, you effectively owned it in that way. And you're more expert than me, than me, Brendan, but I have had a lot of experience with this. The fastest and easiest way to improve the financial condition short term of a company is to take it out on the workers and take it out on the customers in terms of product quality, right? Which is, which is why it is so common 
for a company that makes great products to all of a sudden start to make she you know have you ever had this experience where you, there's a brand or a thing that you love and all of a sudden it just starts to get shitty <laughs> um dollars to donuts it was purchased by a private equity company well what often happens is you know you've got a very short investment horizon you know you need to make a return very quickly it's not necessarily going to make sense for you as a private equity firm to be investing in the long-term health of the company, investing in research and development and re investing in your workforce and so forth, or even really investing in your customers. You know, sometimes it makes a lot of sense to jack up prices or lower the quality of care at a business because, yeah, that might hurt you in a few years. But if you're trying to make a profit in, you know, 12 or 24 months, you know, oftentimes that makes a lot of sense. And so it's really interesting to see how this plays out just sort of across industries, whether it's, you know, private equity firms buying up veterinary clinics, and then there are complaints about quality of care or buying up, you know, in human medicine, um, dermatology practices, and then buying needles that were allegedly so cheap that they would break off in people's arms. These are sort of abstract incentives, but they have very practical consequences for people. Right. Or... For example, buying my my family's very successful manufacturer of bed pillows and down comforters and bankrupting it within one year, right? Which we owned this business for, I don't know, 80 years or something like that. And, you know, my, my brother and I were doing other things. I'm doing this. He's running a he's running a professional soccer team. My younger brother owns the Seattle Sounders, so neither of us had uh, the time to put into the family business, so we wanted to sell it, sold it to a competitor owned by a private equity firm, and the thing was gone within 12 months. It was just shocking and shameful, and they were clearly dishonest about the circumstances that we were putting our former employees in. I don't know if this is if this is what happened with your company's bankruptcy, but you know, as we're talking about sort of bankruptcy more generally, it really is interesting the extent to which private equity firms, I think, have really succeeded in the bankruptcy process, even when their companies do not necessarily. You know, one example that I always return to is Sun Capital's acquisition of Friendlies, the dining chain in the Northeast. You know, they bought the company, pushed it into bankruptcy, but then also became the company's largest lender. And by doing that, you know, normally when you own a company and it goes bankrupt, you sort of lose the company. By also being the company's lender, they were able to sell friendlies from itself to itself, which was this sort of weird sort of magic trick. And the result of that magic trick was that they were able to push off the company's pension obligations onto a quasi-government agency called the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. And so it meant that the private equity firm was able to hold on to the diner chain, but the people that lost were the employees and the retirees who, you know, were really depending on, you know, a reliable uh, retirement. So it's very interesting that I think private equity firms' expertise oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes is less in sort of managing a company and more in sort of managing and navigating our legal processes. You argue in your book that this should be illegal, what they did. We need to change the law to prevent that from being a, a legal avenue of profit-taking. Yeah, on the, on the bankruptcy issue specifically, I'm not a bankruptcy lawyer, so any bankruptcy lawyer will, will be you know, shaking their head here. But um, you know, there are a couple tactics that they use called 363 sales, credit bidding, 
and so forth. And, you know, those tactics are are perfectly appropriate in certain circumstances, but I think that they're getting, speaking personally, I think they're being used in a way right now that probably is not consistent with the with the intention of the bankruptcy laws and certainly is working out for the private equity firms, but not necessarily for employees and retirees. So, you know, the average American, no matter how much they go bankrupt, they can't discharge their student loans because, you know, moral hazard. But, uh, you know, if you're a private equity, you can get rid of your pension obligations just like that. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's, it's interesting because what I've seen is private equity firms really have access to some of the, if not the best legal counsel in America, then certainly, you know, the, the best compensated legal counsel. You know, I think a lot of the large law firms right now make, a, you know, private equity firms are really their leading businesses uh, or their leading clients. And as a result, you know, they've just got the firepower to litigate a lot of issues that ordinary people don't. You know, going back to Sun Capital, uh, which which we were just talking about, you know, I was following a, a case that they had litigating over whether they had to pay out $4.5 million in retirement uh, benefits. You know, $4.5 million for a, for a private equity firm when you've got billions in assets under management is is sort of a rounding error but you know because they had the ability to do this and i think because they they wanted to literally set a precedent they were willing to spend i think 10 years litigating this issue and were ultimately successful and you just don't have that kind of ability on the other side of these issues and you know the the interesting about this brendan is you point out that this this really isn't new what's going on now this is very much like uh, the uh, trusts of the Gilded Age. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I think every 20 years or so, America invents a business model that's got some misaligned incentives. You know, whether you're talking about private equity firms today, subprime lenders 20 years ago, savings and loan associations 40 years ago, conglomerates 60 years ago, trusts 100 years ago. You know, it's it's interesting in that I think there's a real legal similarity between private equity firms and the trust of the Gilded Age, in which they were these, there are these sort of institutions where you have centralized financial and operational control over sort of disparate businesses, but not necessarily commensurate legal responsibility for those actions. And so it means that, you know, I think that there's a lot more financial control over our economy today than there was perhaps 40 years ago. And we're sort of approaching back to the model that we had during the Gilded Age. Right. And I think an important point you make about about the Gilded Age, about the trust, is that this wasn't where in the, the innovation was coming from. The innovation had come in the decades prior. This was kind of uh, a late stage capitalism. Now we're going to consolidate uh, these industries and consolidate profits and control. And it actually led to an era of economic stagnation. Yeah, it's super interesting. I remember Louis Brandeis uh, in Other People's Money sort of relays this quote about when the Steel Trust was created. A lawyer who was present there said something to the effect of, with that signature, the United States steel industry is in the hands of men who know nothing about it. That often, you know, these trusts were, you know, were, were essentially created and controlled by financiers, not by people with operational experience in steel, railroads, tobacco, sugar, and so forth. And so I think that there is a sort of risk of history repeating itself, or at least rhyming here, that 
you know, we, we have a industry, the private equity industry, which, you know, is spending over a trillion dollars buying businesses every year, you know, for comparison, you know, the entire US GDP is $25 trillion. You know, we've got an industry that is largely run by people not with operational experience, you know, experience in engineering, sales, marketing, logistics, and so forth, but experience in financing. And when you have that, I think it changes how companies are run, and often it changes how effectively they're run. It might be useful for you to describe how private equity firms make money. I mean, the problem, of course, is not just selling the enterprise successfully, right? Because if that's what they had to do in order to make money, the incentive structures would be very different. So explain that. Private equity firms, like a lot of the financial industry, are typically compensated under what's called a two and 20 model, which means that they get 2% of the money of all the assets that they're managing. So all the investors who gave them money, they get to take 2% of that every year. And then they get 20% of the profits after they reach a, a certain threshold. And, you know, that's reasonable enough as it is. It, it means that, you know, if the company makes money, then the private equity firm should make money as well. But there are a lot of sort of asterisks or complications to that that really change the private equity firm's business model so that its incentives aren't necessarily aligned with the companies they buy or even necessarily with the investors who give them money. So in addition to the 2% of money that they get from all the assets they manage every year, they also typically are able to extract what are called management fees and transaction fees from the companies they own. So the Transaction fee means that whenever the business does some big deal, they get a cut of that money. And so if they sell their real estate, for instance, they might get a percentage of that. And that's often why private equity firms will ask nursing home chains to sell their assets or retailers to sell their stores and lease them back because they get these transaction fees. They also get management fees, which is basically a fee that they pay for the that the company pays for the privilege of being owned by the private equity firm. And the important distinction here, I know this is a little in the weeds, is the private equity firm gets 100% of those fees, but it only gets 20% of the profits. So what that means is the private equity firm often is incentivized to essentially extract money from the company it owns, whether or not that ultimately helps the company in the long run. That can take some kind of extreme, um, go to extreme limits sometimes. You know, one thing that's fairly common is what's called a dividend recapitalization, which is the private equity firm will essentially direct the company to borrow money to pay the private equity firm a profit. Um, so it's a little bit like getting to use somebody else's credit card to pay yourself, because if the company then goes bankrupt, the private equity firm may or may not have to pay that money back. So that's a very long answer to a short and straightforward question, but what it's meant to illustrate is that private equity firms, you know, sometimes have ways to make money even if the company does terribly or even right. if the and this is and this is the sort of the core of where it gets really shitty and evil, correct? Well, as a government employee, I wouldn't swear. So, okay. but, um, but I, I think it, it, it gets to the core of the problem here, which yeah. is they've got all these ways to extract money. And then on the flip side, when things go poorly, you know, they are often able to escape legal liability. You know, the book starts with this story about Carlisle buying up 
HCR Manor Care, which is this large nursing home chain. And then they execute a lot of tactics like sale leasebacks and, you know, cutting staff and so forth. But when health code violations spike and when a resident actually dies in an understaffed facility, the family isn't able to recover any money from the private equity firm because the private equity firm is able to say in court, we don't technically own the nursing home chain. We merely advise a series of funds whose limited partners through several shell companies ultimately own the nursing home chain. And that was enough to confuse the judge and get the case dismissed. And what it means is you've got all these tactics for extracting money, but when push comes to shove and somebody tries to hold a private equity firm legally liable for what happens, oftentimes there's no recourse and they get to walk away. The world is littered with the refuse of this business model, is it not? I mean, there are almost no, I mean, it just feels like, and I don't, I don't actually don't know the statistics, but you show me a company going bankrupt and I'll show you a company that has been levered to the moon by private equity firms, right? <laughs> I mean, Bed Bath & Beyond is a recent example. The Toys, Toys R Us being a canonical example. Do you know the statistics better than I do? Yeah, you know, we've got one study out there that had this really interesting comparison that was looking at a, a sort of cross-section of companies in the U.S. economy, and they estimate that um, about 2% of the companies, I believe over a 10-year period, went bankrupt. But similarly sized private equity-owned companies, 20% went bankrupt over the same period of time. So private equity firms were responsible for a tenfold increase in the chance that a company is going to go bankrupt. It's it's almost as if loading a company up with debt isn't good for business. <laughs> almost, yeah. So, Brendan, what should we do? So, I I want to, you know, sort of convey a message of hope here. And I don't want us to be Pollyanna-ish about here or sort of overly optimistic, but there's a lot of things that we need to do and there's a lot of things that we can do. You know, at core, you know, I sort of mentioned the three problems with the private equity business model about thinking for the short term, over-reliance on debt and fees and insulation from liability. If you can change those, you can make private equity firms a productive part of the economy. Yeah. Um, and so how do you do that? You know, obviously, Congress is one avenue and there's been important legislation proposed um, there. But, you know, there's also a lot of different levers of power here, whether you're talking about federal regulators like the SEC, the Treasury and the Federal Reserve, you know, states that could limit the use of some of the tactics that we've been talking about, like dividend recapitalizations and sale leasebacks for companies that are headquartered or, you know, have a presence in their jurisdictions. Local activists have actually been enormously successful at you know getting action on private equity firms in specific industries, whether we're talking about you know getting rulemaking on minimum staffing criteria in nursing homes, or in prison services where private equity has been uh, enormously involved, uh, getting federal you know first local then state and now federal legislation um, to allow caps on the on the costs of prison phone calls. So I think that there's, you know, there's a lot that needs to be done, but there are a lot of different avenues that people can take to do that. And so I, I just highlight, you know, if people are looking to get involved in these sorts of things, you know, your podcast, I think, is doing really important educational work for folks. I think institutions like Americans for Financial Reform, the Private Equity Stakeholder Project, the American Economic Liberties Project, and a whole bu bunch of other ones are doing really important sort of research, advocacy, and, and education work. And I think people might be interested in learning more. That's really fantastic. 
two final questions. Uh, the first is the benevolent dictator question. If you were in charge, specifically, what would you do? I would change our corporate, this is a little in the weeds, but I would change our corporate veil piercing laws, which basically tend to insulate investors like private equity firms from responsibility for the consequences of their actions. And I would say, looking to state corporate law in Delaware and elsewhere, I would say, if you have effective control over a company, whether by choosing the board of directors, its executives, or being able to direct its operations, you can be held legally responsible for the consequences of those actions. And I think if you did that, private equity firms would become much more sort of responsible long-term investors um, that could actually, in a way that could actually be helpful for the economy. Yeah, I mean, people forget that we that the whole in- incorporation process, we limit liability to serve a public good. And if it's not serving the public good, we don't need to shield them from liability. Yeah, and 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 I'm not trying to propose a radical critique of of right. limitations on liability. You know, for you and me with our you know humble you know 401k accounts, it you know it probably makes sense that we're not liable for for the actions of the little mm-hmm. companies we invest in. But if you've got control over a company, you probably should have a little bit of responsibility. Yeah, interesting. And one final question: Why do you do this work? I think the challenge of economic justice is one of the defining ones of our time. And no matter what issue you care about, you know, whether it's climate change or gun control or religious freedom or whatever it happens to be, it is harder to make progress on that issue if you don't have an economy that works for everyone. So that's why I get excited about these things. That's a fantastic answer. Well, thank you so much for being with us. This was a an amazing conversation and um, your work is really important. And uh, I hope, I hope that the book is super successful and people read it and act on it. (laughs) Well, that's very kind of you guys. The scale of this is shocking, Nick. I mean, uh, Brendan mentioned that, you know, about $1.2 trillion a year in these uh, leveraged buyouts from uh, private equity out of a $25 trillion economy. And, you know, we've talked in the past about the trillion plus dollars a year in stock buybacks. I mean, uh, a trillion dollars in leveraged buyouts, a trillion dollars in stock buybacks, that's going to add up to real money pretty soon. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's a giant industry. And you know, like so many of the large features of the neoliberal version of capitalism that we have accepted in this country, it's just, you know, it's not an institution that serves a broad public purpose anymore. It has metastasized into this, I mean, piracy is really what it is. Right. The act, you know what? It's the difference between piracy, being a pirate and being a privateer. The difference is... That when you're a privateer, you're a legal pirate, right? That's true. That's true. That's literally true. That's true. You you got a letter from the king saying, have at it. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead and uh, and seize those those ships and their cargo. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what this is. So we should just call them privateers. That's more respectful. It is. It is. And it's a shame because, of course... There has to be a role for finance in mm-hmm. uh, in an economy, and there sh- it should certainly be a role or a place for buying companies, improving their circumstances, and selling them for a profit. 
But it is certainly true that we need to substantially change the laws, norms, and policies that surround this business practice to convert it from the mostly deleterious effects that it has to mostly positive ones. And I think Brendan's book makes a great contribution to that. As always, we have a bunch of links in the show notes. We recommend you get Brendan's book, Plunder, Private Equities Plan to Pillage America. You can buy it at your local independent bookstore or that big online monopolist if that's what's more convenient for you. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.